that each one of us uh, last week shared our grace stories. I want to thank you for sharing those as well. And I just want to pray for us, pray for God to continue to further our grace stories. Sometimes they don't go as we planned, as Dave and Pam share. And uh, some of you know what that's like. In fact, rarely <laughs> do they go as we expect. But uh, let me pray that God would speak to us this morning. Father God, <clears throat> thank you for the opportunity to open your word. And I just ask that you would continue to further our grace stories. I pray for those that uh, maybe haven't started in a journey with you yet. God, I pray that you would show them how you've had your hand in planning all through even the bad stuff and that you can redeem that and change that. And Father God, I pray um, that you'd speak through my lips, that you would give us your truth, that you would remove the enemy from this place and you'd speak to us. God, please, as we open your word, show us your grace, show us your truth and further our stories for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, last week we talked about grace stories. This week we're talking about the evidence of grace. And think about evidence and how important it is and how it can change people's lives and how it can answer questions. Oftentimes you have questions about things that have happened and the evidence makes it known. Like my wife, she's a great cook. She'll bake cookies periodically at our house. And just imagine she bakes, you know, some cookies. And for those of you who don't know, we have four little girls in our house. If they smell cookies being baked, they will flock to the kitchen. And so imagine she bakes, you know, 12 chocolate chip cookies. And then I come in there because I want a glass of milk, of course, and it happens to have a cookie along with it. That's great. And so I come strolling into the kitchen, and I see there aren't 12 cookies any longer. There are nine cookies. And then I turn and I see our three oldest daughters standing there with chocolate all over their face. Do I have to ask a question at that point? If I ask a question, I'm probably making my daughters tempted to lie. <laughs> Who ate these cookies? Well, it's pretty clear because you have chocolate all over your face. It's the evidence. You know that evidence reveals reality. Evidence can sometimes change future. Evidence can change the way that we view things. I don't know what's happened since you wrote your grace story down on your worship program last week, but we've continued to live life for another week, and so the Lord willing, God's continued to further your grace story. I don't know what you did this week, and one of the things that I did this week is able to celebrate a birthday with my wife. It was her birthday, and uh, she's 29 again, and uh, we've been celebrating that one for about five years now, and so we're excited uh, to continue on in that celebration. One of the traditions we have at our house is that um, she'll, go, she'll take me out when it's my birthday on some special date. I'll take her out when it's her birthday, and we try to do things that the other person's been wanting to do. And I remember one of my favorite times was when she took me out for my birthday in Dallas, Texas. We were living there while I was in seminary, and uh, one of the things I wanted to do is see some of the city. And so she took me to dinner at this one kind of an odd place. It was called Medieval Times. I don't know if you've ever been there before. And then afterwards, she said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to go see some of the historic, significant historic things in our city. And one of them was the Grassy Knoll. If you don't know what the Grassy Knoll is, it goes along with the story of when one of our presidents was shot, which is actually an incredible tragedy in our country, JFK, John F. Kennedy. And some of you maybe even were around um, when that took place, um, so you're old. But anyway, no, I'm just, just kidding. I just <laughs> couldn't fight it. I was fighting. My filter was on. I wasn't, we love you. God bless his gray hair. Please don't email me, okay? I'm glad you're here. If you were around when that happened, then you probably remember where you were at when you found out that JFK was shot, and maybe you remember the news reports, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald shot JFK, and all that. that's what I was taught in school, and then I remember my wife took me to the grassy knoll, and we're there, and it was kind of a weird experience. Let me tell you why it was a weird experience. People started popping up out of nowhere. I'm not kidding, like from behind bushes, we'd walk by a pole, somebody come walking around the pole, and they all had a theory about what actually happened that day. And so they start telling us stuff like, see that window up there? That's where they said that Lee Harvey Oswald was at. There's no way he could have shot from there because this tree was there. And I was like, how many years ago was this? How big was that tree that day? Like, it's not making sense to me, but they're talking about two shooters and the U.S. Treasury was behind it. And some people said CIA, some people said Soviets. You know, there's different people there. But they all, it was interesting. They all had these pamphlets or booklets or magazines that they'd stick in your hand and they'd say, here's this top secret information. And I'd open it up and I'd look at it. And then they'd say, and you can buy that from me for $20. <laughs> 
So here's this information the government doesn't want us to have, right? And I can buy it from you for $20. That makes a lot of sense. And who am I? And who are you? And what's happening? This is not normal. But they were trying to reveal to me more evidence that would change the way that I viewed history. See, evidence is incredibly important. And today we're going to talk about the evidence of grace. And ultimately the question you're going to have to ask yourself, I'm not going to trick you here, is is grace evident in my life? If someone were to come and investigate my life, would grace cry out to them? Would they see it? And how would they see it? What is the evidence of grace? If you have your Bibles, we're going to be back in the book of Acts. It's where we were at last week. But last week we were in Acts 9. This week we're going to be in Acts chapter 11, talking about grace stories. And we saw last week that Acts is a unique book because it's right after the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He's risen from the dead. He's given his disciples this commission, the reason why they live their lives, and it's to spread this grace story. It's to spread his grace. And he starts this movement. Do you remember what the movement was called? It was called the church. It's not something we oftentimes think of as a movement. Oftentimes we think of the church as an institution or an organization or this thing that we go to. The church in the first century was not somewhere you went just to be inspired. It wasn't just a place you went to see some other good moral people. It wasn't a place you went for religious entertainment. What the movement was, was these people that had experienced God's grace, originally preached by a guy who was living on a second chance named Peter, who tells these, this group of people, listen, you killed God. Now let that sink in for a minute. You killed God through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And they said, what do we do? And he says, well, God will give you a second chance. That's grace. Repent, turn to him. He'll wash you clean. You'll be a new creation. The old is gone. Be baptized to proclaim it to the world. And then it starts to spread. And that first day, 3,000 people come to Jesus. The first church was a mega church. And there's all these people that are coming to Jesus. And then they're telling other people about Jesus. This grace movement starts happening. And brothers come to Jesus and sisters come to Jesus. And you tell their kids and the spouse and coworkers. And people are coming to Jesus. But remember, everybody's not excited about this. There's this one guy named Saul who's the most adamantly opposed to it. Is anybody else? He's the greatest opponent to Christianity. In fact, he's killing Christians to try and stop this movement. But then God even gets a hold of his life we saw last week. What we saw is he's the worst sinner in human history, the chief of sinners, Scripture says. But even God can save him by his grace. Do you know what that means to us? It doesn't matter how far from God you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter who you are. God can change your life. God's grace can transform your life. You can have, like Dave said in his video, a but God moment. You were doing your thing, but God intervened. It also means it doesn't matter how many how years you've been praying for somebody, how far from God they seem to be, how much religious stuff they know in their mind, but you know it doesn't trigger it in their heart. It doesn't matter how far from God they appear to be, God can transform them. That's what he does with Saul. And then he continues to spread his church. And what we're looking at in Acts chapter 11 is not an individual grace story, it's the grace story of a church, a church plant. In fact, I believe that any church plant that actually continues beyond a couple years and actually sees lives transformed has to be a story of God's grace. And think about it with our church, and I know discovering I'll share the full story of our church, but I think about it. it started when God put a burden on my heart and on my wife's heart to come and plant a church. We didn't know it was even going to be in Raleigh-Durham, but then God let us here. We didn't, we'd never lived here before. We didn't know any people. The first people we talked about to the church that we actually knew here, they said they weren't going to come. So it's God's grace. There's anybody here today. But do you know why people are here? And they continue to come. It's because God changes somebody's life and they tell somebody else. And so then those people, they come and they try to check it out. And then God changes their life. Or your life has changed somewhere and you've got to find a place that talks about similar stuff. And so you want to come to a place that's going to continue to talk to you about this grace, continue to develop in this grace. And it's by God's grace he continues to grow this movement. That's what happens in Acts chapter 11. It's a church called the church in Antioch. Look at how it happens. Verse 19 
Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. They were scattered. This wasn't all in one direction. This would be like saying, hey, the gospel started in Raleigh-Durham, but then because of this persecution that took place, it scattered all over the place. And so it went up to New Hampshire, went down to Florida, went to L.A., back over to New York. It was scattered all over the place. And they were telling the message only to Jews. That's key. Verse 20. Some of them, however... Men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. This is revolutionary in the movement of the church. Up until this point, it's not that there haven't been any Greeks that have come to Jesus. They've all done it on their own initiative. This is the first time you see the church actually reaching out to Gentiles, actually reaching out to Greek-speaking people. Verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. That was like the the mother church. Remember, 3,000 people in one day. That was the first church. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch, one of their leaders. Verse 23. When he arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. He was glad. It filled his soul with joy and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And so what we see here is there's this persecution that takes place. It causes people to scatter, which is the very thing that that God said would happen. You go all over the place, and you start telling other people about grace. And at first, they're just telling Jews, but then they start to tell these Greeks as well. It's the first time this has ever happened. And so word gets back to the mother church, church in Jerusalem. And you saw what happened there in verse 22. The word got back to them, so then they send a guy named Barnabas. If you've never heard of Barnabas before, first time you see him is in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. And what he does there is he sells some property. And he gives all the money to the apostles. So the apostles, according to these, these are the guys that were the first ones that were teaching and preaching in the early church. These are the guys that were with Jesus and then saw him resurrected from the dead. In the early church, they surrounded themselves around the apostles' teaching. And so he lays it before them as the leaders of the church and says, here's this money, all of it. You use it to impact people's lives. Spread this grace movement. That's the first time we see him. Next time we see Barnabas in the book of Acts, it's right after Saul comes to Jesus. Remember the story from last week in Acts chapter 9? And then he's, the, he's got a reputation as a murderer of Christians. So guess what? When he shows up to have a little Christian rally, <laughs> Christians don't want to talk to Saul. They think it's a trick. They think he's lying. They don't believe him. But Barnabas is the one who puts his arm around Saul, brings him before the people, says, based on my reputation, I'm sticking my neck out for this guy. God's really done a work in his life. He's a guy that's generous. He's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. He looks at people through lenses of grace. That's the way that we see him. And so when this church finds out that this thing's happening with these Gentiles, with these Greeks, it's never happened before. They pick Barnabas. And they say, Barnabas, you go. You go to Antioch and you check this stuff out. And then verse 23 is key. Did you see verse 23? If you have your Bible, look back at it. It says, when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God. What did he see? What's the evidence of the grace of God? In fact, too, in transparency, just to be real candid with you, the NIV is the most popularly translated Bible in human history. It's the New International Version. It's the one I'm reading from here. It's the one that's on the screen. It says the evidence of the grace of God. The New Living Translation says the proof of God's favor. But if you read like the King James, some older translations, the New American Standard, it doesn't have that word evidence there. It just says that Barnabas saw God's grace. And that's more accurate to the Greek text. The Greek text actually doesn't have a word for evidence there. The translators for NIV, New Living Translation, they've inserted this. Why? Well, let me ask you this. What does it look like to see grace? How big is grace? 
Is it round? Is it square? Like, how do you look at grace? What color is grace? You don't see grace. What you see is you see the evidence of grace. You see the results of grace. You see the proof of grace. It's like when you see the wind. You don't see wind. You see the effects of the wind. That's what grace is like. There's an evidence you see when grace is present. And the first evidence that we see of God's grace in this passage goes back to the context, verse 19, and what it is? It's suffering. See, God's grace is made evident through suffering. That's our first point. God's grace is made evident through suffering. And we see it in this passage. This evidence is shown here in verse 19. Now those who had been scattered, why were they scattered? By the persecution in connection with Stephen. So there's this persecution that took place in the life of this man named Stephen. Now Stephen is unique. He's, a, he's described much like Barnabas. He's a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. First time we see Stephen is in Acts chapter 6. Now what's happened here, sometimes we read these stories, we go by them real quick. Think about if you started a church and there's 12 of you, pastors, right? Apostles. And then in one day it goes to 3,000 people. <laughs> that sounds exciting. You've got a logistical nightmare on your hands. And then the people start telling other people what happened in their life and then people just keep coming. And there's more and more people. And every day there's more and more people that are part of this movement. Now what do you do if you're the apostles? You're trying to do everything. You're trying to teach the Bible. You're trying to pray. You're trying to make hospital visitations. You're trying to feed people. You're trying to be there for counseling when marriages are struggling. You're trying to, somebody has a miscarriage. You want to be there to listen to them, to show them the scriptures. You want to go through all that stuff with them. But you eventually you just can't. And so in Acts chapter 6, what takes place is they create a system. And the system is that the apostles, the original leaders of the church, will teach the Bible and they will pray for the people. And then there's going to be another group of men that are full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit that they're going to use to feed the widows, that they're going to use to care for people. They're going to use for a bunch of the counseling and the serving and the benevolence and all the stuff that takes place in the church. Stephen's one of those guys. And what happens is, so he starts feeding widows, right? Who doesn't love somebody who feeds widows? I mean, this is the kind of guy that everybody's kind of like a teddy bear. You just love this guy. He's wonderful, full of faith, full of spirit. But some people spread some lies about Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, he gets pulled before court. And they say, you're teaching people not to obey the law. You're teaching people to violate the law of Moses. And he says, that's not true. You want a great summary of the Old Testament in a real short spot? Maybe you're a new Christian trying to grasp all this stuff? Read Acts chapter 7. He gives a summary of the Old Testament as he preaches to this court. But when he gets to the end, he says this. You stiff-necked people. <laughs> it's not real seeker-friendly. He says, you stiff-necked people. He says, you are just like your forefathers. They killed all the prophets who promised the righteous one. And then the righteous one came, talking about Jesus Christ, and you killed him. And they get mad. And so they drag Stephen outside the city, and they stone him to death. And we talked about it last week in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, where he cries out, don't hold this against them, a man of grace. Can you imagine how gruesome it is to die from being stoned to death? Talk about a tragedy. Sometimes we just read over this stuff. You read somebody's stoned to death and they stoned him, or if somebody does this, they should be stoned, and God tells people they should be stoned in the Old Testament. You see these things take place. Can you think of a more gruesome way to die? Because you don't die when the first stone hits you. So people just keep throwing stones. What a miserable way to die. Now imagine for a moment, these people, they're three-dimensional, they're real people, and they've got real family members. And I don't know who all Stephen's family was. But can you imagine if you're Stephen's mom and you find out the religious leaders... They just murdered your son. Why? Oh, because he feeds widows. <laughs> My boy was a good boy. God, why did you let this happen? Or, or if Stephen was your dad. So my dad is a man that's full of faith, and this is what he gets? Or his spouse, 
My husband was feeding widows. He was caring for people when they go to the hospital and their marriages are struggling and he gets killed for it. And it leaves those questions, those why questions. God, why would you allow something like this? Why, where did this come from? Can't you stop this? There's all those questions that come. Let me tell you something, though. And we don't see it when we're in it. But God has a reason for this stuff. He works all things together for good. For our good. And for his glory. And the good that we see through the suffering is his grace. Grace is made evident through suffering. And it stinks to think about that when you start thinking about your own story. I'm going to tell you, I read some of your stories this past week. Several of you wrote down on your grace stories. Uh, last week, we, afterwards, at the end of the service, if you weren't here, we had people just some time to reflect and think through their own stories and on the worship program. And you can do it again this week if you want to. But they just wrote out some of their grace stories. And some of them, I read them. I was so excited for you. Some of them, I read. And my heart was broken, in a, not in the sense because you went through such bad stuff, but, but some of you, I just thought, oh, good stuff has happened in your life, but do you really get it? And then there were some where I read them and I just thought, oh, I wish this never happened. And I asked permission from a few folks if I could read some of them. I brought a few today. And that's how you see God's grace through their suffering. There's one young lady, and she told me I could read this. And they're not written necessarily. You remember it's on the back of a worship program in paragraph form. So sometimes they're just bullet points or real short sentences. But it says, when I was eight, my father killed himself. He's the one who told me about God. I was trying to think about that as an eight-year-old. I was mad at God for letting my father die for a very long time. When I was 18, I was still dealing with depression from losing my father. I also contemplated suicide. I met a girl who told me about Christ. She bought me a Bible. She was patient with me and told me to pray and ask God to save me from my sins and suicidal thoughts. I prayed as a last resort. God overnight took the suicidal thoughts away. And I accepted Christ. God can redeem tragedy. He doesn't waste our tragedy. It's part of our grace story. Denied the faith for years, when one person writes. God pursued me by sending people in my life, but I denied. It took my father getting killed in a car accident for me to begin searching for something. Over time, God softened my heart by continuously sending people in my life to speak truth. I said yes to Jesus in 2001 and still learning to receive God's grace. Still now. One young lady wrote, learned mom had cancer, wept. It's a one-word sentence that speaks very profoundly. Lord spoke to my heart and said, are you going to turn to me and depend on me, the one who has healing power, or are you going to turn away from me and blame me for your mom's cancer? Turn to Lord and will depend on you. Thankful that he called on me and I answered, I could not have handled mom's battle with cancer without him. It's in the midst of the suffering. We come to the realization of God's grace. See, God doesn't waste our suffering. And it's not just taught through experiences and not just through your experiences, but God speaks to us in the suffering. It's taught throughout the scriptures. We see it here in Acts chapter 11. It's because of this suffering, it's because of Stephen's death that the gospel went forth. Do you remember? See, we have the privilege when we're not in the story and we're reading the story. We have the privilege of seeing the big picture. And the big picture here goes back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Some of you might know that verse is a popular verse that Jesus, when he's speaking to his disciples, says, you'll be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You're going to have power. You're going to be my witnesses. Guess where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. Guess what's happened up until this point before Stephen gets murdered? All the gospels really concentrated in Jerusalem. 
But then we see here that then the gospel is scattered because of this persecution. And guess where people go? Acts chapter 8, verse 4, Samaria. Acts chapter 9, Saul gets saved, and guess what happens in Saul's life? Then he goes and he starts planting churches all over, writes a big portion of the New Testament, which then impacts our lives in America. Who's even heard of America at this point? To the uttermost parts of the world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world that happens here. As a result of this suffering, the gospel goes forth, which is God's plan, and it's good for us, and it's good for his glory. He takes all these things, he works them together for his good, for his glory, our good. It's an amazing thing. That's why the authors of the New Testament, you see them right throughout. James chapter 1, verse 2, he says this, Rejoice, or consider it for your joy. Take joy in, depending on your translations, my brothers, fellow believers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And pause right there. Because there are many kinds of trials, not just persecution. Very few of you, if any, will die because you're stoned to death for your faith. All of us will face some kind of trials, believers and non-believers. Cancer, abandonment, loss of a loved one, somebody commits suicide, questions about God, a tower falls on someone, like in the New Testament, an earthquake takes place. There's all kinds of stuff that happens. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, believers in Jesus. Here's why. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And all these things test our faith. And then he says what perseverance does. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It's ultimately for your good. You will develop through this process. A book I recommend to you if you want to dig into this topic a little bit more is called If God is Good by Randy Elkhorn. I borrowed it from our shepherding pastor, Jason, this week. And I was reading through it. Great book. I'm going to order a copy myself. We're not going to all pass Jason's around the church. You just order your own copy. It's a great book. And then he talks about some different analogies for this. And one of them that I really liked was, if you're a mountain climber, your goal is to get to the summit of the mountain, right? Isn't the most efficient way for that to happen for you to take a helicopter and have it drop you off at the top of the mountain? But don't you rob yourself of something in the process? See, they don't do that because they want to go through the process. And then he goes on and he says this, if God wanted to, he could create doctors and athletes and musicians and, and all kinds of different things. He could create all scientists. He could create them. But he doesn't. He creates children. And children, through various experiences, trial and error, different tragedy, great experiences, they develop into doctors, and they develop into teachers, and they develop into nurses, and they develop into physical therapists, and they develop into moms, and they develop into spouses, and they develop into pastors, and they develop into evangelists, and they develop into all of these things through various circumstances. There's a process that's required. And if you've ever been responsible for someone or something else, you know when you're responsible for the process, you don't try and stop it from having any pain. If you've ever had a pet, if you've ever been a parent, if you are a physical therapist, if you are a teacher, if you are a doctor, if you are a nurse, if you are any of those things, you know that loving doesn't mean that you block it from all pain. You know that it's going to require some temporary pain for some long-term development, long-term benefit. And what God does is he takes our pain and he takes our suffering and he redeems it for his glory. And it's not just the New Testament. We see that in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 10. He says this. He says, I've refined you, though not as silver. I've tested you in the furnace of affliction. It strengthens our faith. Who are you going to depend on? He says to that one young lady. Are you going to depend on me? Or are you going to blame me for this? It strengthens our faith. There's a suicide that takes place. And there's an anger towards God. That's not unnatural. But ultimately, that's what's used to break someone and bring them to God. It's for their good and for his glory. 
You see this in, in various different stories, repackaged multiple times, same thing. The Apostle Paul even experienced it. The guy who wrote Romans 8.28, for God works all things, all good things, bad things, all things together for good for those who love him. And then he goes on and he says he's given his son. And then he goes on through that and he says nothing can separate you from the love of his son. Nothing. Doesn't matter what the things are in that same chapter, Romans chapter 8. And he's in the context of talking about his own sufferings. He talks about his sufferings throughout the scripture. In fact, he's probably suffered more than anyone here. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says this, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. It was more than we could handle, so that we despaired even of life. This is the Apostle Paul who writes much of the New Testament. I wanted to die. It was so bad. In verse 9, we, we want you to know about this so that you will know that in our hearts we felt the sense of death, but this happened for a reason, to increase our trust in God, that we not rely, might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And so you see throughout the scripture multiple reasons. You see sometimes it's a refining of us. That means removing some things that don't need to be there anymore. Sometimes it's a development of perseverance, as James tells us, so that we wouldn't lack anything. It's putting new things there. It's building strength for us. Sometimes you see here, like with the Apostle Paul, so that we would have a greater trust and dependence. Last week we saw it's to get our attention sometimes. Sometimes it's to break us. There's various reasons, but God doesn't waste our suffering. Instead, in our suffering, he demonstrates his grace. The greatest example of this is Jesus Christ himself. It was God's plan that his son would become human. And just think about the suffering that's entailed with that. He'll be tired. He'll be hungry. The scripture says that he'll be tempted in every way just as we are tempted. Do you ever struggle with temptation? Actual battle with temptation? He knows what it's like. And then you start to look at his life. He knows what it is to be abandoned. He was abandoned. Betrayed by an incredibly close friend with a kiss. He knows what it is to be betrayed. He knows what it is to be lied about. He knows what it is to be slandered. He knows what it is to be lonely. He knows what it is to be forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Talk about emotional battle. I read some of your stories, anxiety, depression. He battles to the point of sweating drops of blood. And then he's murdered. This is God's plan? That his son would then suffer like this and die? Why? So that we would know grace. So that our suffering would be meaningless. So that we would then demonstrate grace. See, it's in suffering that God's grace is made evident. But God's grace is not only made evident in suffering. We see that in verse 19. Go to the next verse. We also see that God's grace is made evident in sharing. In verse 19, it said, Now those who had been scattered by persecution in connection with Stephen, that's their suffering, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. And that makes sense. Because this is primarily a Jewish movement. But then something unique happens. Verse 20, we see who they're sharing with. See, his grace is made evident in sharing. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now understand this, you've got to understand there's a tension here between Gentiles and Jews. And the Gentiles, those are the Greeks. The Greek-speaking people, they have a different culture. The way that they live is different than the Jews. And so the closest thing you can probably think of is if there's like racial tension, socioeconomic tension, political tension between two people groups. Put all that in there and that's what it's like. There's a reason why Jews are not allowed to intermarry with Gentiles. You don't want your sons and daughters marrying their sons and daughters. There's a reason why they have a mentality, the Jewish people, of we're God's chosen people. And sometimes they miss the fact that there would be a light to the world. 
See, there is a tension there because these are the people that are not allowed to go into all of the temple. Sometimes they're referred to as dogs. Now, it's any time you would take someone and put them in a people group that would view another people group, and I'm not saying that Jewish families would say this out loud in their homes, but it's a second-class group of people. And here's reality. We all have done it, and we all do it. I don't care where you're at socioeconomically. I don't care where you're at politically. I don't care what your views are on sexuality. I don't care where you're at spiritually. Everybody, no matter where you're at, has a view that there's somebody that they're not as good as you. And that's what the natural tension would be. Now, here are these guys. And it's like they don't get the tension anymore because now they get grace. Something's been freely given to them. And no matter how much they give it away, they don't lose any of it. And so they decide they're just going to give it to anyone and to everyone. And word of this gets back to the mother church. And this is radical. This is revolutionary. No one's ever seen anything like this. And they're doing, they're doing it. They're giving it to these kinds of people, the Gentiles. And you know what the problem is for us? As long as we think that we're better than someone else, we don't realize that we are these kinds of people. We are the sinners. We are the second-class people. We are the ones that are in need of a Savior. And see, Jesus goes out of his way in his ministry to make it very clear that's who he came for. You read in Mark chapter 2, what ends up happening in Mark chapter 2 is Jesus is teaching. He's real popular at this point in his ministry. It's early on. He doesn't have all of his disciples yet or any of that stuff, but he's teaching, packing the house out. People are there. You can't see through the windows. You can't get in the front door. So some guys, they bring a guy because they know Jesus can heal people, and he's on a mat. He can't walk, and they carry him up on top of this house. They pull the tiles up, and they drop the guy down in front of Jesus. He's like bun- he's the first bungee jumper, okay? He bungee jumps down in front of Jesus. And you can imagine, if I was teaching to you right now, and all of a sudden some dude drops in through the ceiling, it doesn't matter how great that point is that I'm talking about. We've got to address what's happening here. Okay? And Jesus, he stops his lesson. I don't know what he was teaching on. And he starts talking to this guy. He says, your sins are forgiven. All the religious people get all uptight about this deal. And then Jesus says, now take up your mat and walk. And the guy gets up and he walks out. And even the religious people who were upset a minute ago, they're amazed at this. Everyone there, the text says in Mark chapter 2, Luke chapter 5, says that he, they were all amazed. Now remember, Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry. He can call anyone to come follow him. And you know who he calls? A guy named Levi. Later gets named Matthew, writes the Gospel of Matthew. He's a tax collector. Tax collectors are hated by everyone. It'd be the equivalent of saying, hey, you're an Al-Qaeda, you come follow Jesus. Hey, you're homosexual, you come too. I want you to be one of the first people. Uh, You're some left-wing liberal and you're pro-whatever stuff that we hate, you come over here with me. Guess what? Jesus was teaching a lesson just by who he called. And he calls Levi, and Levi comes. And you know what happens then? Levi's excited about this deal, so he throws a party. He invites all of his pimp friends and all of his tax collector friends and all of his prostitute friends because, you know, all the trouble people, they hang out with each other. And so that's who they got friends with. And they have this party, and they're like, this party started. You know, he's all excited. It's a song in my head. Anyway, so they're all having the party, and that's going on. And the religious people come by, and they see it. And do you know what they say? Jesus is a rabbi. He's the host of this party. What's he doing with these kinds of people? And Jesus then tries to teach these folks they are these kinds of people but because they're self-righteousness, they don't get it. He comes out, he says, doctor doesn't come for healthy people, he comes for sick people. No response. Savior doesn't come for righteous people, he comes for sinners. That's these kinds of people. Is that you? And then they have a decision to make. And we all have a decision to make. Are we these kinds of people? You know, the pimps and the prostitutes and the people who think different and all that stuff. 
See, how is it that these guys from Cyprus and Cyrene are able to share with Gentiles, with these kinds of people? And do you know what I believe the reason is? It's because no one told them not to. Remember where we're at in church history. (laughs) There's no church culture. It all just started. They're given an amazing gift. They're following the example of their, the one they're following, their Savior, their Lord. And what happens to many of us, I believe, is that we get enculturated by church culture. And I don't care how long you've been here. You've been here for 20 minutes. You're, you're a church person, okay? And here's what happens with church people. We don't say this out loud, but we slowly start to teach each other lessons. And the lessons are things like this. If they don't think like us, they don't act like us, if they don't believe like us, then, then here's the deal. They're not like us. So you keep them kind of over here. Every once in a while, like to protect your family, keep them all back over here. We'll run over, give them a little flyer, run back. But they're different than us. Here's, the, here's how you know this is true. The longer someone's been a Christian, the less non-Christian friends they have. No one told you to do that. You've been assimilated, not into Christianity, into church culture. And so what happens, we say, well, yeah, it's because I want to be edified and build each other up. And you know, I run out every once in a while and do that thing, but... The best evangelists are people who just trusted Jesus. It's because all their friends are non-believers, so they already have their relationship. It's not a phony thing. And see, these folks, they haven't been enculturated by the church. And so you see the evidence of grace and who they're sharing with. So who are you sharing with? And can you imagine for a moment if we could strip away all the church culture stuff, how that would change the grace movement? How it would change how we share the gospel and we share God's grace with people who think differently than we do financially, think different than we, than we do politically, think differently than we, than we do sexually. How would that change us? See, grace is supposed to transform us. And it's made evident through suffering. It's made evident through sharing. Who are you sharing with? And it's made evident through transformation. And maybe that's how God needs to transform some of us. See, God's grace, the evidence of it, it's seen through transformation. Suffering, verse 19. Sharing, verse 20. Transformation, verse 21. The Lord's hands was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. That's transformation. I'll rephrase this. The Lord's hand was on them, and a great number of people were connected to Jesus for life change. The Lord's hand was on them, and a great number of people experienced genuine heart transformation. The way that Luke says it here in Acts. is they believed... They received the information, acknowledged that it was true, that's belief, but then they turned. Belief is accompanied by action. James is the one who says that faith without deeds is dead. Am I saying that you're saved by doing good things? No. You're saved by grace through faith, but when there's faith, there will be actions. In fact, actions, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that God's predetermined for you since the very beginning of time. He's got a plan for you. And the actions will follow the faith. They believed and they turned. They turned from something to something. That was the transformation. And so what did they turn from? Well, we don't know all the individuals that are involved here, but we know about Antioch. We know that Antioch was a town at the time of about 500,000. Since it shrunk to about 40,000 today. But at the time, it was about 500,000 people. They were upwardly mobile, highly educated, very well-traveled. In fact, there'd be multiple languages there. People would be seeking their careers and education and academia, things like that, very, uncom- very common there. It wouldn't be uncommon to have some very religiously devout people who are religiously devout but didn't know Jesus. There was incredible sexual sin in this city. In fact, some of their religion actually revolved around temple prostitution. It was modern-day porn. And so when they were turning from something, think about what they were turning from. There was people turning from being so smart they've got life all figured out to faith in Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. 
There were some people that were turning from being in control of their own life to letting Jesus Christ be Lord of their life, taking something else off the throne themselves and allowing Jesus Christ to be on the throne of their life, turning to the Lord Jesus, the text says. They're turning from sexual sin to forgiveness for sins, God's grace. They're turning from knowing a whole bunch of stuff and trying to do it on their own, religious devotion to God's grace. They're turning from career and accomplishment and reputation being the meaning and purpose of their life to Jesus Christ being the meaning and purpose of their life. There was a turning point. That's the key in transformation. Have you experienced that kind of transformation? I told you I read your grace stories. I know some of you have. An incredible transformation. There are themes that go through these. You know, one of the themes that's there, and I tell you this mostly so you know that you're not alone, is a turning from sexual sin. That was a very common theme. To Jesus Christ and real freedom. Turning from addictions and bondages. Turning from anger and abuse and bitterness to freedom that comes from Jesus Christ. Being released in that. Experiencing healing in that. It's a common transformation through the themes of folks that I read in our church. Have you experienced that transformation? Are you still kind of here? Like I believe, mentally you acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, he rose from the dead. You kind of put that on the shelf with everything else, but you're still in control of your life? Or you're still trapped in this sin? Or you're still living in this bitterness? And you're still, and whatever the things, there hasn't been a real transformation. You know what another theme was? Is that people would say things like this. I grew up in church and heard all the Bible stuff and placed my faith in Jesus when I was however old, but then kind of went and did my own thing. Do you know what that means? You believe, you haven't turned. There's information there. Even the demons have that information. See, that's, that's not conversion. That's not transformation. That doesn't mean that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. That means you might know some religious stuff. Best theology in the New Testament is held by demons, by the way. You have to experience that transformation. That's where the grace story begins. Like there's one young man. I have permission to share his story. His family's gone to our church for a little while now, but uh, when he was about 12 years old, really was at a place where he felt like he didn't belong, he didn't fit anywhere. And I don't know if any of you have ever felt that before. You just don't fit in, or maybe you're not good enough, you feel like you don't measure up, whatever reasons, that you, whatever phraseology you would use, same type of feel. And so as a 12-year-old, he started getting involved with drinking alcohol. And he started hanging out with some of the troubled kids because the troubled kids, they accept everyone, right? Because they're these kinds of people. They're not real, real big on making sure that they're not better than everyone else, right? I hope you sense my sarcasm. It's supposed to be the grace people that are that way, but in reality, it was the troubled kids that are that way. And let them into more trouble. Started huffing, for those of you who know what that is. Got involved with prescription drugs, recreational drugs, and we're talking a couple-year process now. His stepdad caught him. Called him out on this deal. And ended up sending him to rehab. Was in and out of rehab for a little while. And rehab basically did nothing. He didn't get worse. Didn't get better. Just kind of in rehab. And then eventually started to progress. And was kind of doing it in his parents' face. And his parents came to the realization, we've got to do something. We've got to take some drastic steps here. And they decided to send him away to a, a place that specifically specialized in uh, rehab for uh, young people. Got him involved in church, community service. Trying to clean him up with some of the drugs and, and alcohol and things like that. And he really white-knuckled it for about six months. Faked it. Did it on his own. Self-control type stuff. Had a relapse after about six months. Got caught smoking pot. And then God started to grip his heart. And he started to realize he has to depend upon God. He can't do this on his own. Hadn't placed his faith in Jesus, but realized he can't do it on his own. For about three months, God started to do a work in his heart. On December 23rd, his parents flew him back to Raleigh. Came to the Christmas Eve service at Southbridge. We had 
I gave a real simple message, real short message. It was basically this. You've got to come to the realization you can't live life on your own. In fact, when you try to do it on your own, you fall short of God's perfect standard because it's sin. You're living life for yourself. And you can put in there theft. You can put in there lying. You can put in there whatever practice of sin you want to put, but we're all trying to do stuff on our own, and that's sinful. And God's supposed to be Lord. He's supposed to be directing our steps. And so we fall short of his perfect standard, but he offers us by grace a new life. And if we want to receive that new life, then we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And I said, if anyone wants to admit their sin before God, place their faith in Jesus Christ. And please stand up today. First person I saw stand up was this guy, 17 years old now. His name's Stealth. I looked across the room and saw him standing up over there. His mom, the way she tells the story is that she started to cry. She saw her son stand up. Afterwards, she asked him, why'd you stand up? I said, I felt God's spirit leading me to, to stand up. It was time to be his. It's time for him to place his faith in Jesus Christ to be Lord. Guess what? That was a turning point. That's transformation where I turn from, I'm going to do this thing, to I can't and I need your grace. That's the transformation we all need. That's the transformation you see in the scriptures through people. Zacchaeus, the guy steals money from people as a living. Jesus comes to his house for dinner and he stands up in the middle of the meal and he says this, I'm giving away half of my money to the poor people. He's got to keep some because he steals money from people for a living, right? And then he says, I'm going to pay back four times the amount of anybody I've ripped off. That's why I still needed to have some money. Jesus never told him he had to do that. If you read the story, Jesus just tells him that salvation's come to his house. There's transformation at that point where he turns and he goes from being a crook to being a generous person. There's transformation from when we go from being sexually addicted to being freed from that sin. There's when we go from holding the bitterness and the anger for all the stuff that shouldn't have happened that happened and being freed from that. And there's no condemnation for us now because we're a new creation and we're in Christ Jesus. For stealth, he didn't think he measured up and think he was good enough. You know what? That question's irrelevant now because Jesus Christ was good enough. He was good enough to die for our sins. He was good enough to transform our lives. And the question is, have you received that transformation? And if you haven't received that grace, I'm offering it to you today. Because it's been given to me freely. And I want to offer it to you. And no matter how much I give it to you, it's not taken away from me. And here's what has to happen for you, though. In order to receive it, you must admit your sin. You must admit that you fall short of God's perfect standard. And he's offering you a gift. And that gift is eternal life. And you have to receive that gift. And you must believe upon Jesus Christ and his death for you on the cross. And then he's able to offer you this life because he's not dead. He's alive. He rose from the dead. And then he'll give you forgiveness. He'll give you grace. And you can start your grace story today. But what will happen is he's asking you to turn from whatever it is that's Lord of your life now and make him Lord of your life because that's who he truly is. And if you want that grace, you can receive it today. You can pray in your seat, just quietly in your heart even. Say, God, I admit my sin. I believe upon you and I want to receive your grace. And begin a relationship with Jesus today. Begin your grace story. For those of us who've received the grace of God and we have our grace story, is there evidence? Do we see it through the suffering do we see it through our sharing? Are we even sharing? We have something to share. That's grace. And do we see it through our transformation? Let's pray. Father God, I come before you and I pray for any and all that will hear these words that need to place their faith in your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that right now they would bow their hearts before you, admit their sin. Even as I'm praying right now, just admitting their sin. And believe upon your son, Jesus, and receive your grace. And if you pray to receive Jesus today, would you just mark that on your connection card, please? Or if you're watching online, will you email us? And Father God, I pray for those of us who know your son, Jesus Christ, that you would give us 
the passion to share it, remove the hindrances, remove the cultural stuff, remove all the junk, and God, allow the transformation you've done in our lives to be known and seen so that you would receive glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.